Uh, some of you may know this, some of you may not. Summer tends to be a season when uh, lots of large church organizations have their denominational kind of meetings. They have councils and assemblies and just the big meeting is where they get together to catch up on the year and to help to decide how the denomination is going to go forward. I, we, the Christian Missionary Alliance, had our General Assembly at the beginning of July, and throughout the, this season, there are many places that have similar such things. And um, being a little bit nerdier, perhaps, than you are, I try to listen in on, on some of the discussions that are happening. And it, sometimes it's uh, a place where you like, that was really good learning. Somebody found a really good way to say that. I really appreciate that. Sometimes it's, I'm not sure that I heard you correctly. Did you just say? And, and this is part of the inspiration, perhaps, for where, where, what, what I want to talk to you about today. Um, in North America, there are frequently fluctuations in what people believe in. It's not you, and it's not in Canada, but I'm sure it's in Canada somewhere. But this is a major organization that is now seriously questioning the necessity of believing in uh, the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection of followers. And maybe, maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal to you. You go, I just got to live my life. I, I just try to be a good person. I try to be kind. I, I, try to, I, I try to be what I think God wants us to be. I think we should feed people. I think we should be kind to people. We should love everyone. And you sort of say, I, I don't really care about this background stuff, that theology stuff. It just seems to divide people anyways. But I want to talk to you about resurrection. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe what I should say is I want to talk to you about resurrection again. It, it comes up. We talk about it at Easter. Um, so last week, we kind of brushed past the essentialness to Christianity of the resurrection. Um, I said then, and I'm say it again today, it's a big deal. And at the same time, I say that I don't pretend for a minute to look at you and say that the idea of someone, anyone coming back from the dead doesn't sound wild and highly questionable, all right? I absolutely embrace the utter strangeness of that claim, the discomfort that we feel in that. Talking about coming, somebody coming back from the dead never, ever puts people at ease, and it never has, and it never will. So one of the criticisms of Christianity traditionally is that you know what? Not even the early Christians believed that, right? It's argued that uh, it only came to be part of the belief long, long after Jesus was on earth. And Christians at that point looked back and they said, how do we, you know, add a little bit of spice to our faith, make it sound a little bit more prestigious and powerful? Ah, yes, resurrection. That should do the trick. That's not what happened. The resurrection of Jesus was essential right from the very beginning. So one of the, the first historically uh, ancient manuscripts that, that we have that was written by the Apostle Paul, um, the first one in the New Testament, it was written to a, a city called Corinth, and Paul has been talking to the people there about what worship should be like, uh, what it should include, what it should not include, and why we should do this, and how it should be treated. And, and he goes on to clear up what should be some of our essential teaching. And the reason that he mentioned this is because apparently, perhaps, it was being pushed aside, not talked about, not emphasized, because, you know, it was hard to believe, 
right? Hard for people to believe it. it, it it's hard to talk about resurrection. It's hard now, and it was hard back in the first century also. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12. This is Paul. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you then say there is no resurrection of the dead? 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 15. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. So right from the very beginning, about 20 years after the resurrection, it was such a key understanding of the faith that the language of death itself had already been adjusted. Death is not to be feared because there will be a resurrection. So it's, it's not like those people are really dead. It, it's just that our brothers and sisters have fallen asleep and will one day be reawakened by Christ. Jump down to verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our hope is in Jesus for right now, in this life, right here, and in the life to come. Verse 25, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet and we spoke last week about some of that spiritual warfare, what it means to do battle, how when we say that there are enemies and they have to be subjugated, we don't mean in this context fighting as the world fights, right? It's a metaphor that we use to describe the conflict, but it's not about swords on shields. It's not about spears. The he must reign and all of his enemies must be put under his feet doesn't mean I got to kill all the people I don't like. That's not what it means. It means all the things that war against the spiritual world, the spiritual life, the kingdom of God, all those things must be subjugated. 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. All right? So this is our understanding. This passage is found in what we call 1 Corinthians because it is chronologically the first of the Apostle Paul's letters to the church in Corinth that we have. All right? It's probably at least the second letter that, he, that Paul has written to them because he references previous correspondence within it. So Paul visits Corinth in about 50 A.D., and he wrote the letter in about 53 A.D. But before he wrote the letter and before he went to visit, he had met with and spent time in Jerusalem with Peter and the other apostles. They were already talking then about the resurrection. It's not a much later addition. It was there at the very, very beginning. It is essential. It is of first importance. And death is an enemy defeated and yet not defeated. So already but not yet. 
The resurrected Jesus ascended to heaven where he rules and he reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he is coming again to judge the world in righteousness. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So there's a time of waiting, which is kind of where we are right now. The universe is not spinning chaotically out of control. Christ is ruling and directing the world to its appointed ends. But notice that death is the last enemy to fall. Until then, it will continue to wreak havoc. We feel it. The sting of death is real. We do not make friends with it. We long for this enemy's defeat. And in Christ, that knockout blow to death is certain. Death's defeat is coming. Our resurrection. We will have physical space-occupying, time-consuming, embraceable, holdable, seeable, smellable, hearable bodies in the resurrection. Glorious, immortal, incorruptible, spiritual, yes, but physical nonetheless. They will be more real, not less real. So, if you believe that the ultimate hope of the Christian faith is hang on now until the day you die, and then gloriously I'm going to be swept off to heaven forever. You might have stopped reading the true Bible and accidentally picked up a false Gnostic gospel. Christian hope is in resurrection and eternal life in the renewed creation. Christian hope is not all of the good things somehow apart from this world. The Christian hope is that this world, apart from all the bad things. The idea of an immaterial soul uh, departing from your body post-mortem has more to do with Platonism and pagan beliefs than it has to do with first century Christianity and its Jewish roots. what, What was God's original plan for mankind? What did He start with? And has Yahweh now changed his mind on his original plan. That one didn't work out. The original plan was the Garden of Eden on earth, where he intended the first family to live forever and to subdue the earth. The resurrection is to restore us back to the original plan. But that's probably more of a heaven talk, uh, and we probably need to have that talk also. So, I'm thinking, talking about heaven We should do that soon. Maybe we'll do that at the end of August, August checkpoint. Would that work for you? We'll uh, we'll come back to heaven at that point. The restoration of the world. Just days, really, after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. Enough days to make them weeks. So, like, uh, somewhere around 40 days after Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, He ascends And then very shortly after that, this little scene, this little story that I'm going to tell you takes place, okay? So the people uh, who came to Jerusalem for Passover are still in Jerusalem, many of them. Peter is speaking to a crowd, and they're gathered there because he has just healed a lame beggar. And he asks them, why does this healing surprise you? We didn't heal him somehow with our powers, no. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has has glorified His servant Jesus. Jesus, you remember Jesus, right? Just a couple of weeks ago, it was you who handed Him over to be killed. You disowned Him in front of Pilate. 
I mean, even though Pilate was set to let him go, you disowned the holy and righteous one, right? It was you guys who did this. You were here. You can't possibly have forgotten about that already because it was a really, really big deal. And it's kind of like a month ago. You guys. It was you guys. Acts chapter 3, verse 14. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. We were witnesses of the whole thing, honestly. We were there. We saw him captured. We were there when he was captured, right? We watched the trial, the trial. We saw him savagely beaten. We watched him condemned. We saw him walk to the cross, stumble, fall, walk. We watched him being crucified. We watched as he was left hanging, left dying. We watched him die. We watched him brought down. We saw him buried. We saw the stone rolled into place. We saw the Roman guards come in and seal that tomb and then take up positions to guard the tomb. We gave up on everything that we had believed as we watched it all. We gave up on it all entirely. But we also saw him three days later. We saw him alive, and we saw him alive multiple times. We interacted with him, hugged him, ate with him, and not just us, but many hundreds others. We saw him resurrected. 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong talking about the lame man. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Jump down to 19. Repent then. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That's the essence of what the story is there. It is not what everybody else wanted there. When you were in Jerusalem, what you wanted was Jesus to come and to reign and to rule, and by rule and put people under his feet, you meant Rome. That's what you meant. You didn't mean any of this spiritual stuff somewhere, someday. You meant right now, right here. That's what I want. I want them gone, and I want you in charge. I want us to have our power back. And Jesus says, that's not even as big a deal as you think it is. The chance to have your sins forgiven is so much more powerful, so much more long-lasting. It is of eternal significance, whereas right now, you're distracted by simply physical things that are going around you. But because of Jesus, our sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, verse 20, and that He may send the Messiah. Remember, this is after he's already gone. This is talking about him coming back. Has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Verse 21, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. To restore everything. Just as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. The God, our God. God of restoration. Our God is the God of restoration, reclamation. And that's great news for you because He doesn't write you off. He doesn't write me off. He restores you. He restores us by renewing our minds. That's the story. He didn't set in motion all of creation, call it good, only to have sin break it, ruin it, so that He would be frustrated, overwhelmed, and then just give up and throw it all away into some cosmic garbage can. 
The promise that we find in the book of Revelation is not utter destruction, but that Jesus says, I am making everything new. Our resurrection is a great part of the restoration. Promises like that give us power to live now and face whatever it is that we have to face now because we know it is not the end. And so we are able to wait patiently. We might be waiting patiently, but we do not wait alone. You've been given to each other as a gift. Some days you question the value of that gift, perhaps. But you are a gift to each other to help sustain, to help power through, to help pick up pieces, to help carry heavy loads. We wait patiently, but not alone. And in a post-Christian world that's growing up, it's taking shape around us, graceless, merciless, unjust, unforgiving, superstitious, self-indulgent, carnal, idolatrous, And that's just the self-styled, self-labeled Christians. Instead of being drawn together and fighting for unity, we find so often ourselves being pulled apart or worse, 
being the ones that are pulling others apart. Communion is what we're going to do now. It's together. It's about together. The Bible is more communal than it ever has been individual. Jesus, when He taught us to pray, He said, our Father, not my Father. Paul, he uses the phrase, our Lord, 53 times, and my Lord, one time. Jesus is my personal Savior. It's not found in Scripture. We are the people of God. We belong to each other. How you live, how you behave, how you interact, it impacts us all. Jesus didn't say, this is my body, reduced to tiny, tasteless, individual, square bits for you to consume independently and then wash down with some purple sugar water when you feel ready. We gather together, and the together is important to remember, to reevaluate, and to refocus. So let the symbols that we use today remind you of your connection and your commitment to Jesus, but also to that which Jesus worked to birth and to build. You are part of the people of God, the family of God. And so in that letter that I referred to earlier where I said the Apostle Paul was trying to teach people about worship, guiding them about what should happen and what shouldn't be happening. There was a time when they were supposed to gather together as the church and have a love feast, a celebration together, and what was happening is that people were being excluded from it. They, they found lines to divide over, nationality and economic status, and they had different, separate meals. And some ran out of food before some were allowed to come. And as the apostle giving direction on what worship should look like, how do we celebrate, some of the most famous words that we hear on a regular basis came out of that kind of context where he's saying, we, we got to do better. When you gather together for this, there's a reason why you get, when you gather together. And so he reminds them, for I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Do this. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, don't forget about me. 26, for whenever you eat this drink, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have been called. That's why it's called one of the sacraments. One of the things that Jesus himself called us to do was to have communion, to take the Lord's Supper, to participate in the Eucharist. It is something that we do frequently, but we, we, we do it sort of enough times to remind us that as, as, as long as you feel like you're perfect, you don't need to. As long as you feel like your relationships are great and you're going sinless, you don't really need communion. 
But for the rest of us, the rest of us who are aware that we messed up, that we dropped the ball, that we let ourselves wander, we come back to the time of commitment, not about guilt, never about should. It's all about could. We can come. We've been invited to come. We may approach and in doing this, to remind ourselves, but to remind each other that Jesus died for us and that Jesus was resurrected for us as well. And it's important for me to know that for me, but it's really important for we to know that together, even if we disagree, even if we don't see eye to eye, even if everything that you do is so wrong, we are called together. That somehow we have this Savior who opened up possibility for us. So we take the time regularly to say, I need to remember what He did. I remember the ancient past. I remember the recent past, and I remember my past. How has God been involved? I got busy. I was rushing. I forgot. I put it aside. I chose to not let it influence me, but today we say, I want to remember. So that as we remember, we reevaluate. Re Am I now where I want to be? In my relationship with God, in my relationship with others, am I living a life that is filled with purity, honesty, integrity, authenticity, holiness? Is that where I am? And then before we go, to answer that question honestly, you don't have to answer it for anyone else, just for you. Taking that reevaluation information, the next thing we do is refocus. After reevaluating myself, if you're like me, you're going to find some place where you're out of step. That's okay. That's why we stopped. That's why we got out of the rush to stop to look for those things. Not because we're nitpicking, but because we don't want to let it go on too long. And the sooner we deal with it, the sooner we can get back to going in the right direction. The longer you let it stray, the farther you'll stray. So we remembered, we reevaluated, and today before you go, you refocus. So take your time now. We remember Jesus. Remember the gift that He's done. Ask the Spirit of God, is there something that you need to confess? Is there something that you need to clean up between you and God or between you and somebody else? We choose to live. No one's forcing you. We choose to live in submission to Christ. And that submission happens in all kinds of tiny little details, not just big ones, and certainly not just because you came to church or you tuned in to church. We choose to submit. And then we choose to take these symbols and symbolically to say, I want more Jesus in me, less of me, more of Him. And so we take those elements and we put them inside. We make them part of ourselves saying, Lord, You are Lord of this whole thing. We take the bread, the symbol of His broken body. We take the cup, the symbol of His blood. For the forgiveness of sins, your sins, my sins, our sins.
So that's what we're going to do. Kind Father, I thank you for the gift of Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for willingly submitting yourself to death, even the death of a, on a cross. I thank you for valuing us enough to create a way of escape, for becoming our Savior. Thanks for dying for me. Thanks for dying for us. Thanks for taking the punishment that I deserve. Call me back to you, Father, I pray. That I might walk in righteousness, that we might walk in righteousness, and that you would use us to make a difference in this world. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you have given. We choose to submit ourselves to you once again and ask that you would be part of our lives. You would allow us to be part of your mission. And the part of our lives, we ask that it would increase, that you would increasingly be more a part of our lives as we would figure out how to do that as you continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds. Thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the communion elements set up at the back. You can come down this aisle, go up this aisle, we'll make a little circle. If you go fast enough, we'll create a bit of a fan in here. <laughs> um, I encourage you to remember that your, your, your faith, you interact with God personally, but, but, but never in just supposed to be privately. And it's hard to do some of that spiritual stuff together if you've never done it, but I would encourage you to take communion together. If you came with someone, came with your family, take it together. Agree together that this is what you're doing. If you're, if you're here by yourself, join, join another one of the other groups. You certainly don't have to, but it changes the experience when you say, it's not just about me, it's about we. I would love to help you walk into that path of being known and experiencing unity together. After you take some time to uh, get things right between you and God, you're welcome to come to the back, help yourself to the elements. Thanks.